Now, I have always, uh, how many Titanic fans here? Movie Titanic? I've always, always, always dreamed that one day I could experience uh, the hold me jack moment. And, uh, right, it's kind of like everyone's dream. And it just so happens that uh, in Ecuador, I had that chance. So check this out. Check this out. Here we go. Fire the laser. Here's my moment in Ecuador. Uh, There we go. If you can, there, there we go. On a cable car. Yeah. Waterfalls in the background. I mean, th- this, this is better than the Titanic. Check out Kale like waving his Fabio-like hair in the background back there. You know what I'm saying? So that was over a massive expanse. Uh, just back from Ecuador on Monday. Truly a monumental trip. Um, you get to hear some about it this week and see a video uh, next week. Um, listen, uh, the thing that I've said about Ecuador, and, and I, I've now been there five times in the last uh, four years, is it is by far one of the most beautiful places on the globe. I've been all over the world, uh, by God's grace, have had the opportunity to travel a lot, uh, both on mission and just personal interest. And um, it's a beautiful place, a, a place that many times, including on a cable car going across a massive river, where I'm having to pinch myself because it, it seems so surreal. Uh, we're a church that people often describe as being real. Uh, when I'm out talking to folks about Matthias, uh, I often hear when people just start coming here, uh, they'll, they'll compliment the church by saying things like, man, like I, the sense that I get from the people here is they are incredibly real. And I was pondering that a lot in Ecuador, not just about the church, but in general. How much of our lives at times feels like it's not happening, that it's not real. How could I really be experiencing this? Am I really going through this? This pain or this joy, it doesn't even seem like it's legit or realized. And what I realized is how much we use this terminology, real or not real. Like when I was in Ecuador and experiencing the things that I did, as surreal as they felt, I was there. My heart was beating. I was breathing in those moments. They were very real. What I came to realize is no matter whether your life is a lie or not, that is real. It's a reality. It's your experience. No matter how surreal your pain feels right now, no matter how much you feel like you're in a dream or in a fog, it's where you're at. It's incredibly real. It's, you don't have to pinch yourself or all of a sudden open your eyes to realize that, that this is real life. So what I'm asking is tonight, because tonight's uh, text, an entire chapter worth eight and nine on the plague numbers, we're going to have to ask ourselves many times tonight, is what's happening real? And where do I fit in all of this? But I want to make sure everyone understands, you're sitting in a black chair probably right now, and it's April, what's the date? It's April 9th of 2014. And however you walked in here, every single one of you are here right now, and it's a real moment, a real opportunity, and these precious seconds are getting ready to really tick by. And so because of that tonight, I'm going to approach this like it's life and death. Is that okay? Awesome. Uh, And for the rest, I'm sorry. Um, So I'm going to pray briefly, and uh, then we're going to journey through the entire uh, chapter 10 of the book of Exodus. God, like only you can tonight, uh, come in power, come in truth. 
please show us tonight your reality. I pray, God, tonight that we will understand the significance of your scripture in the terms of time and that we would not just be convicted or challenged, but that, God, tonight each of us would be changed simply by your character. In your great and holy and awesome name, and all God's people said, amen. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. You should have a plague chart. Uh, Who does not uh, have one in your hand? Can you raise your hand? We have some in the back there on the sound booth. We need a couple there. Uh, Sean, thanks if you can grab some there right there. Just keep your hand up. We'll get you a plague chart. Now, I got to listen to Jared's sermon uh, from last week in the Houston airport on Monday morning, and I was supremely blessed by it. Uh, I trust that you were as well. I thought uh, the way he journeyed through uh, the truth of chapter 9 was, was really remarkable. And so I appreciate his diligence to the text. Uh, so awesome having Jared here. And tonight we'll uh, journey through plagues 8 and 9. While, you're, while we're waiting on the plague charts, everyone have one now? We've got a couple back there. Listen to how this will time up. Next week is the week of Easter. We'll have our normal worship gatherings on Wednesday, two services. Interestingly enough, we will get to study, only God could time this up, the Passover. And then just in case you're wondering, the text that we will study, crazy, on Easter Sunday, guess what, is the Exodus. Like who could have timed that up, right? Uh, We didn't like sit down and map it all out like that. All of a sudden we open our eyes, we're like, dude, we're going to be teaching the Exodus on Easter. Like this is crazy awesome. So let's uh, start here in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Now we have an ad. There's not just the hardening now of Pharaoh, but now there's the hardening of all those who serve with Pharaoh, that I might show these signs of mine among them. Here's the intent of the hardening, to show my signs, that, verse 2, you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. This seems odd. It seems like God is bragging on the plagues. It seems like for a moment in time he's saying, look, um, uh, I want sons and grandsons to speak about how harshly I dealt with the Egyptians. And there's this image in our mind a little bit of God smiling Like, did you see what I did with those guys? Like, the gnats, pretty hardcore. The flies, got them with the flies. The hail, you know, raining down from heaven. And and there's kind of this image of God smiling over his wrath. But I want to remind all of us, as we've been saying so much through this journey of the plagues, God will do what it takes to give himself glory, period. And what he's alluding to now is there's been an intention for the plagues, and that's that everyone would know that he is God, and that's that generations would be able to speak about the signs that he performed in Egypt, showing that he could remove his people from the grip of slavery from the Egyptians to give himself glory. What I'm saying is God will do whatever it takes. And, and I know for some of us that's very, very troubling. It's hard to understand how that works or where that functions, especially when it comes to your life, but that is certainly our God. So... Moses and Aaron went in, verse 3, to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. 
how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And if I could just have a moment with every single one of you like I just did with Zeke, except I'm not holding you in my arms, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before him? I'm, I'm wondering tonight if that's a pertinent question for your existence. Um, some of us, myself included, so insanely stubborn. How many of you would say about your spouse that they're like the st- stubbornest person on the face of the planet, okay? Yep. Some of you too stubborn to even raise your hand, you know, like, I don't know, right? Uh, we're very stubborn people. We're hard-headed. We're um, negligent to understanding our own situation. Why would you continue to refuse to humble yourself before God when over and over and over he's shown you how in error you are? You guys have all had that moment, right? Come on. You've had that moment uh, when you were like placing a bet with someone and maybe there wasn't money involved, but you're like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like this is the answer to that question, right? And then you like got on your phone secretly and you were checking out the answer and you realize that the other person was right, and you still held your ground. Like you're looking at the answer on Google, because Google is the answer to everything, right? Wikipedia, like brought up all the truths, right, of our existence. And, and you're looking at the answer, and yet you're still so stubborn that you hold out. It's like the truth isn't the truth. I'm wondering tonight how many of you in the face of God have continued to hold your ground, though... God is saying, how long are you going to refuse in your pride to submit in humility to my sovereignty and lordship of your life? Moses and Aaron ask Pharaoh that. Let my people go, they say at the end of verse 3, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, here's what Moses and Aaron say, behold, tomorrow, verse 4, I will bring locusts into your country. Locusts of all things. There's, there's a piece of all this that you're like, so is this escalating? Like have the, you know, we started with water to blood and we've kind of progressed. Locust doesn't seem to be like an escalation. Like maybe like bats or flying snakes or, you know, like something a little bit more hardcore. But hold on with this. Let's see what the locusts will do. Verse 5. They will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. Again, I have to take the text for what the text says. That means there's going to be a whole lot of locusts. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat literally every tree of yours that grows in the field. They're going to take over what the hail left and did not destroy. There's going to be so many locusts that it's going to blacken the ground and blacken the sky. They will, verse 6, fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth this day. And then he turned, dropped the mic, and left Pharaoh. Um, Can I ask a question? One thing we haven't addressed a whole lot in this journey is the Egyptians, the people. Real moms and real dads that are holding babies, that are trying to make their way through the world. What must they be feeling at this point? What must they be experiencing? Their livestock have died. Their children have bruises from the hail. 
Some of their servants have been killed. They've seen a house that's been flooded with flies. They've seen frogs all over themselves. I mean, they have seen a ton of things. Listen, imagine how tired and exhausted they would feel. It begs the question, it's really important what kind of leadership you follow. It's absolutely quintessential, actually, what kind of leadership you follow. We'll have many leaders in our life. Okay, some are given to us, family. So you're kind of placed in a situation of submission, like it or not, especially as a young child. But all of us choose the kind of leaders that we look up to or follow. And in this case, all these Egyptians are banking on Pharaoh. Could you imagine the tension in their heart? Could could you imagine the frustration? Listen, just imagine the real houses. Like fathers, finally like throwing stuff in frustration. Will you please, Pharaoh, let these people go? Why are we experiencing this again? Like, Pharaoh, seriously, like, this is a clear pattern. God's going to bring the rain of hail, and this is not going to go well. Let's try to be in those houses for a second. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, point proven, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Now his servants are finally rebutting his judgment. Uh, Listen, Pharaoh, I think we should rethink all of this. Like, don't you think it's time to relent, give a little mercy here, let these people go? I'm not sure how much longer we can hang in on your prideful antics. Let the, uh, how long shall uh, this man be a snare to us? Verse 7, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined, his servants say? But let's know, what do they say? Let the who go, let the who go. Let the men, even the servants, who are in this case pleading with Pharaoh, let the men go. They're still doing what Pharaoh's been doing all along. They're still negotiating. The command has been clear from God. Everyone's moving out of Egypt. So even the servants who are wanting Pharaoh to relent are only wanting him to relent a skosh, like my grandma used to say, right? Let the men go. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, in general, the men were the ones that made sacrifice. But number two, the thought is that men would come back for their families. So if they released the men to go out and make sacrifice, they actually wouldn't lose them as slaves because men, hopefully, would come back and get their wives and children. Hopefully they wouldn't get out to the country and say, deuces, we're out of here. Um, That's what they're banking on. Verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. He calls them back. Maybe a little bit of anguish. Maybe a little bit of tension. Maybe finally peer pressure giving in. And he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But he says, does Pharaoh, which ones are to go? Uh, Hello, Pharaoh. It's been pretty clear. Like, why are you asking this question of redundancy, Captain Redundant? You know, like... God has been crystal clear who's going to go. He says, which ones are going to go? Moses said, we will go, you got to love this, with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Does he leave anyone out? I'm pretty sure that encompasses everybody, right? Everybody, right? Verse 10. But he said to them, 
The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, exclamation point, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Now we, now we have an interesting moment in the scripture. You have a pagan king who has been a part of the lineage of holding slaves, 400 years worth, 420 by the time all this is over. And he has the audacity, or at least the scripture records the irony of that king, I think we'd agree, evil king, even to his own people, looking Moses and Aaron in the face and saying, you have some evil purpose. Is it a, someone who knows evil calling evil because he correctly understands it? Or is this the blindness to his own arrogance? Either way, he's not giving in. He's not going to negotiate. No, verse 11 says, go, the men among you, not the women, not the children, not the young, not the old, and serve the Lord. For that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh gets angry. He says, nope, here's the deal. We're going to send you out. You're going to take the men. You're not going to take anyone else. And he drives them out. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. Well, several interesting things to note here. In general, in Egypt, um, uh, typically, uh, there was a, a, a southerly wind. So for it to come out of the east, it was a little bit strange. It's also strange to me and interesting that God uses a wind to bring the masses of locusts. He could have used anything. I mean, he could have just dropped them from the sky like manna from heaven. He could have birthed them from the ground. He could have done anything, but instead, wind. Uh, these are the fun moments in Scripture, at least for me. Now, these are the moments that I journal about. These are the moments that I think long and hard at night about. These are the moments that keep me up at night. Are they ever yours? Like when you're like, why wind? Why does God use wind to bring locusts? He could do anything. They could rain like raindrops from clouds. Why wind? So the image I got in my mind, and I don't think we'll be able to fully answer the question, but at least we can have some fun. The image I have in my mind is the Egyptians, including Pharaoh, walking out first from their homes, noticing the shift of the wind. They can feel it across their face. And can we just agree? There's something about a breeze in your hair or across your face, isn't there? That's what, that's what I love about the ocean. Come on. Don't, like there needs to be some song, like a soundtrack behind us right now. I'm feeling romantic all of a sudden, right? Right? Like, like there's something about, you know, being on the... On, on the, you know, the, the opening to the ocean and just feeling that breeze or something very, very, very powerful with wind. And so God uses wind in this case, and I've been thinking about this for several days, not just as a sign of beauty or a feeling of freedom, uh, but in this case, judgment. It's showing that he can use anything. Listen, it's showing that he's not bound by anything. It's showing, listen, that our God has no limits. 
When Scripture says that he's the, uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means there's pieces of our God that we cannot even begin to comprehend because we are an ever-changing people. So the fact here that God uses wind is just another example in a full litany of them that our God will do whatever it takes to bring himself glory. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. Just imagine the sound. We hate a few cicadas. You know, imagine all of these locusts. Did I say that right? Cicadas, cicadas, decadas, whatever. Verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm, says verse 14, of locusts as had never been seen before, nor will ever be again. Locusts in Egypt were a common insect. I tried to do as much research as I could here because many people say, just like the other plagues, this was happenstance. Look, there typically are locusts in Egypt. God just happens to speak at the same time that some locusts come. It's all coincidence. Right. And, it, and it is true that in general there are locusts in Egypt. At times winds would bring locusts in Egypt. But what's not true is the amount of them, the immensity of them, the density of these locusts. And as verse 14 says, they had never seen this many before, nor will they ever see this many again. They covered, verse 15, the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land, did the locusts, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. And you're like, well, they're in the desert. They're in Egypt. There probably wasn't too much green anyway. Actually, on the contrary, they're around what? They're around the Nile, okay? And remember when I showed you the picture of all the life around the Nile? The Nile provided green things, and now the locusts are taking away what the hail didn't. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Here's what Revelation 9 says, in case you're curious. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Does anyone else find it interesting that hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years later, a man named John writes about locusts coming and specifically mentions that there's going to be a locust of judgment that will not take away the green of every tree and the plants, but instead be given power over those who do not have the seal of God. Does anyone else find this interesting? Oh, the Bible is filled with such coincidence. Listen, isn't it crazy how puzzled together the scripture is? That now in the face of judgment, not just of a bunch of locusts, but of the end, we see the power of God's wrath. Verse 16, and this takes a massive shift, my friends, beautiful. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Pass the tissues. What? Let me read that again. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, 
I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, now this is a peculiar moment, right? It's like all of a sudden everyone, everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pharaoh's going to get saved, you know? Like, like this is a, this is a power. I've, I've sinned against God. Notice the all caps Lord. He calls him Yahweh. And I've sinned against you, Moses and Aaron. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. Oh, there it is. There it is. Uh, husbands and wives here. How many husbands and wives? Marriage. Thank you. Have you ever had this moment like a good friend of mine? Um, a good friend of mine, once in a while, will get in a conversation with his, good, with his wife. And, um, and every once in a while, um, my good friend um, will get tired of, of their spouse, their spouse's talking. Um, my good friend has told me before that at times, like, their wife likes to talk things out a lot. And when that happens sometimes, laying in bed, he said... That every once in a while, his strategy will just be to say, I'm sorry, and roll over and go to sleep. Um, and I was like, whoa, dude, you got problems, man. You know, I was like, whoa, you need to, I don't know, what's your, you need to check yourself there, brother. And he's working on it, progressively. Um, it's, it's repenting with a motive. And I'm wondering, uh, fellas in here, has, have you ever done that before? Have you ever used the word sorry to your advantage? Um, have you ever said I'm sorry, not really meant it, just wanted to end the conversation because you were tired of talking about it or didn't want to be faced with the reality of your sin? Have you ever used sorry, forgive me, I repent, to get something from God? Have you ever realized how far you've gotten away from him and you start to understand how intimately you're connected with him and you start to feel the distance amidst that and then thinking in your own mind that maybe I can deceive God into saying I'm sorry, asking forgiveness and in his grace, of course, because the Bible tells me so, He'll receive me, but in my heart, I'm not really repentant. I can deceive God. Problem is, the scripture says, God cannot be deceived. He will not be mocked. There's a reality of true repentance and not. Well, Pharaoh says, look, I've sinned, God. Here I am. I'm a sinner. Moses, I've sinned against you too. Please forgive me, but what does he say? Only this once. Those past plagues, my past hardness, my past arrogance, not so much. But this time, I need something from you, God. I need a blessing. I need you to relent. I need no more wrath. Look, you can tell what true repentance is in your heart because it's evidenced by your life. True repentance is not like a dog that returns to its vomit. 
True repentance is a heart that sees his sin in light of the character of God, turns from that sin, and runs from it. First John says, though, but, but if we say we have no sin, then we're liars. So does that mean that we'll always be over here, far away from our sin? No. We will struggle. We'll fail again. But repentance, my friends, is losing the craving for the thing that you once in your flesh desired desperately. Come on. And now it's not the things of your flesh that give you fulfillment. It's the things of the Lord provided in your life, helping you understand that it's his sustenance that provides for all your needs. That's repentance. This is not. So I just... I want all of us to be honest a little bit. Have you ever told God that you're sorry? Have you ever repented just to get something from him? It's because you felt like he was on your back. My question is, is that repentance at all? Now, therefore, verse 17, forgive my sin, please, only this once. And plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Now we're talking. First time we've seen this phrase in this way from Pharaoh. He's starting to recognize that this is a life and death situation, if he only knew. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, did Moses and Aaron. And the Lord, verse 19, turned the wind into a very strong west wind. Look at this. Which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Um, times in the Bible you want to see something in a movie? Come on, right? Like imagine this moment. It had to be a heck of a wind, don't you agree? I mean, that had to be some kind of tornadic, is that tornado-ish? It had to be some massive wind, right? Literally, these locusts just being picked up. And again, he could have done anything. We've seen the death of all these insects in different ways. But instead, a wind shifts, changes in direction, and all these locusts into the Red Sea. Not a single locust, the scripture says, was left in all the country of Egypt. Has anyone been struck by how much absolute there's been in the plagues? Not a single fly, not a single frog, not a single locust. Really? Not one locust is left. We have to take the word for what it is. But the Lord hardened, verse 20, Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The locusts aren't enough. Plague chart. Let's rock and roll. Pens under your seats. Here we go. Here we go. Questions from the plague chart. What was the eighth plague? And again, I hope all these are finding ways on your refrigerator. The locusts. Have any of you guys legitimately had a conversation about the plague chart because it's on your fridge? Anyone? Okay. We, we got a few. Praise God. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I actually paid him a couple bucks earlier to raise his hand. Um, next uh, question. Why did God choose that specific plague? Listen, look at this. To completely decimate. All signs of plant life leaving nothing green left. God is again, God is again showing that he holds life in his hands. He takes away all the green left over by the hail after the hail had, uh, had been gone and shows that all plant life, all life sits in his hands. Next question. What was Pharaoh's reaction? Uh, he confesses to have sinned against the Lord Asks for forgiveness, but he notes only this once. 
I don't really need forgiveness of all those past things. Just this one time, Moses, if you could please ask your God and we'll figure all of this out. Fourth question is this, what was the result? Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, and Pharaoh's heart continues to be hard. Now I want to pause here and remind, ask, refresh. Many of you are, are struggling with this image of Pharaoh. We constantly see hardness of heart. You're like, well, how can he, how can he be held responsible? The scripture has made clear it's God's action that's hardening his heart. And we saw at the beginning of this chapter that God is doing it to make his name known. As we say here over and over and over, God's sovereignty does not negate personal responsibility. Every single one of us will either pay for our sin or have our sin paid for. You guys hear what I'm saying? Every single one of us will either pay for our sin or have our sin paid for in Christ. That's the two categories of people that are on the surface of the planet. Those who receive Jesus as Savior, as Lord, and those who do not. Okay. God's sovereignty does not negate personal responsibility, including Pharaoh. Lastly, what does this plague reveal about God? God's will by God's power for God's glory, and more specifically, God receives glory by the people knowing that he is the Lord amidst the signs. Generations, sons, and grandsons. Many people. Many understandings. They'll know that he's God by these signs. Now, I have no idea tonight. No idea uh, where, you're, where you're coming from, where you're sitting in your life, what you're, what, what you're going through, what you're journeying through. All I'm asking is, for these next few moments, as we look through the ninth plague, could every single one of you just, just take this journey with me? Is that cool? All right. Check this out. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, no warning. Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And then he notes, a darkness to be felt. Cue the picture. This is uh, Ra. Everyone say Ra. Uh, you're like, this looks just like every other Egyptian picture you've shown. Um, difference with this one is Ra has a big ball on his head. And wrapped around that ball is a, uh, is a snake, is a serpent. So the question is, what's the ball? Anyone know? The sun. Egyptian scholars. Well done. Ra is the solar deity of Egypt. Ra makes the sun rise. Ra makes the sun set. Ra makes the moon orbit. Um, like Ra holds the thing that makes light and makes darkness. That's what the Egyptians believe, bless you, that Ra does. So now the, the ninth plague is going to be God bringing darkness. Look at this, unbelievably powerful stuff. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for, what does your word say? Three days. Three days. Interesting, isn't it? 
three days. Um, I know some of you guys have gotten enamored before with like biblical numbers, right? You, you, maybe you did some study of like all the times in the Bible the number seven shows up. You got really obsessed, you know, and you were telling all your friends like, make sure that, you know, seven's in your lottery numbers and, you know, all, the, all this kind of strange stuff. But, but, three days of darkness. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So why darkness and why now? We have one plague left. Why darkness and why now? Listen, um, God has shown a lot of things. He's shown the Egyptians that he gives and that he takes away. He has shown the Egyptians that, um, that they're not in control. And now God, almost in his like final understanding, pits himself against Ra. I was sharing with Jared earlier. I, I kind of picture this, this moment, you know, and not that God says this, but I'm going to act like it right now. Uh, go ahead, Ra. Like, well, where's the sun, man? Like, go ahead, bring it up. Like, it's okay. You can do it. You're a big boy, you know? Right? Like, it's on your head, man. It's wrapped in a snake. Go ahead. Like, unravel the snake, man. Let the thing go up in the sky. What's wrong? Listen, isn't it encouraging to know that God holds the sun in his hands? Isn't it encouraging to know that he holds the universe in his hands? Isn't it encouraging to know that yet another lowercase God does not even stand on the same ground that our God does? That our God once again looks at Ra, looks at the understanding of this whole situation and says, What God? Go ahead, make the sun rise. It's going to be dark. Where are you at, Ra? What's going on? You got a problem? You can't make it happen? That's right. Because the sun is being held in my hands and my hands alone. So where in the world and what in the world are you and I doing? Thinking that somehow we can like control aspects of our life that are better left in the hands of the one who has a perspective that is incredibly godly. Right? And yet we want to grab our niche and dive into our piece of the Godhead. And God once again says, nope, darkness. And then, my friends, one of my favorite verses of chapter 10. This will seem strange at first, but work with me. They did, did the Egyptians, not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. It is so dark in Egypt that they could not see each other, and therefore they did not leave their house. Well, uh, in Ecuador, we had a really interesting experience. Many of you guys know I'm not a camper. I like showers and toilets that flush. Um, But in Ecuador, uh, we spent three and a half days with zero electricity. Uh, 20 uh, 20 feet from where we ate dinner was a 100-foot cliff, uh, literally. Um... At night, I would wake up, and I would wonder if my eyes were open. It was like that dark. You would open your eyes, you'd be like, are my eyes, am I dreaming? Is this, you know? And no, they were open. It was just that pitch black. I mean, utter blackness. Imagine that for three days. Uh, Let me say it this way. There's a reason why prisons throw some of the worst criminals or some that get the most punishment in something that's called the hole. Uh, when I, uh, and I try to do as much uh, research of testimonies on people who have been in the hole, it's not a place that they celebrate. 
you don't like have a birthday party in the hole, okay? The prisoners don't say, hey, listen, my family's coming. Do you mind going ahead and setting up a, a picnic for us in the hole? You know, no, it, it's a horrible place. It's dark. Uh, I read a couple testimonies that said after, you know, two or three days, you start hallucinating. You don't even know what's up or what's down. The natural cycle of our day, like, helps promote our life. And when you lose that, you almost lose your, your sanity. I mean, this is, this is the power of darkness. They don't see people, and they don't leave their house. I want to contend to you that... Um, that many of you are experiencing that right now. Uh, darkness has such a grip on you that you don't want to see anyone. You don't want encouragement. You'd rather be isolated. And let me just make sure everyone understands this crystal clear. I believe one of the greatest strategies of the enemy is to isolate us. It's for you to believe in your mind that you need to be by yourself. I don't need anyone. No one will understand. Forget all those people. I can do this on my own. If the enemy can get us to believe that, then at the core what he's doing is he's breaking down all of the texts that talk about the power of the body of Christ. You guys see what I'm saying? He's providing lies to the truth that texts like 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 make crystal clear that we're the body of Christ together. That it's not good for man to be alone. If the enemy can isolate us, can get us to a place of darkness, that we think it's better to be alone, to cry alone, to laugh alone, to sit in our room alone, I'm telling you, he has won. And I'm just asking right now for those of you that have believed that truth, that have seen it as true, that have separated and isolated because you got hurt, because someone wronged you, because the pain's too great, let me make sure you understand something. In this story, darkness goes hand in hand with isolation. They didn't see nobody. Can you imagine what that would do to people over time and what it's doing to you right now? Look, let's just agree. People will burn us. Anyone in here not been burned by somebody before? I'm not seeing a massive amount of hands. Okay. Same dude I paid earlier. You know, it's, thanks, bro. You can, you can stop. You don't have to raise your hand every time now, man. It's cool. All right? All right? Like, people will burn us. They'll break our trust. They'll lie. They'll deceive. That's real. They're real people, and they're going to do that really. But if we allow people to dictate the truth of the scripture, then we're allowing people to dictate who our God is. You guys see what I'm saying? If we allow our experiences to dictate who our God is, then we're taking God out of the scripture and formulating him around our encounters with others and the encounters in our life and the pain we've experienced. We're making up a God then that's just convenient for us. And the second thing is, they don't leave their house. They don't want to be around people. They don't leave their house. Why? Because darkness produces and continues to produce shame. Some of you don't want to be around people and you want to stay in your house all day long because you want no one to see the downtrodden, shameful piece of your face that will give away that you're deeply rooted in sin. 
So if you can just stay in, in the darkness, if you can just hang there, maybe things will get better. My experience, it never gets better there. Anyone else? My experience is it never gets better there. Never. There's never been a dark time in my life where the darkness has produced something awesome. It's the hole. There's never been a time when I've been in the prison hole and I thought to myself, this place is kind of cozy. But you know what? Hopelessness and the lack of what's real and what's not starts to get to you after a while. Could you imagine three days of darkness in Egypt? God showing Ra who's God. But it wasn't the Israelites' case. But all the people, verse 23, of Israel had light where they lived. <laughs> had they done anything to deserve light? Anyone? Like, did God look down and say, man, you Israelites. No, they're, they're his people. They're his children. He's taking care of his kids. He's come to rescue them. They've done absolutely nothing to deserve light, and yet God in his grace, as Jared taught so well last week, has given them light. Then uh, Pharaoh, verse 24, called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Look at what he, your little ones, now he adds the ages, right? Your little ones may also go with you, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Pharaoh, what is your problem? That's not the deal, man. The deal is everybody. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. We're not going to kill our children as sacrifices, Pharaoh. Our livestock, verse 28, also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And, and we do not know um, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But verse 27 says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And now in the face of ultimate darkness, we have a really interesting dialogue. Verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall. What does he say? Question, has uh, Pharaoh been in darkness for three days? Come on, has Pharaoh been in darkness three days, anybody? Have we seen a death threat yet from Pharaoh? No. Do you guys see what darkness does? You see the fruit of it? What started out as a porn addiction start, suddenly got a little bit more hardcore. What started out as gossiping to one or two pretty soon became a whole jungle, as it were, of gossip. Darkness produces more darkness. Pharaoh has yet to make a death threat, as evil criminal as he is. But three days in darkness, Moses, get out of here, because the next time I see you, you will die. And so Moses says with a smirk on his face, as you say, I will not see your face again. plague chart. Ninth plague. Darkness. Next question. What did God 
Why did God choose that specific uh, plague? Show the Egyptians that Ra, the solar deity, is not in control at all. He can wear a sun on his head all he wants, but he doesn't hold the sun in his hands. Next question. What was Pharaoh's reaction? He tries to negotiate again. You can have your people, but you're going to leave your herds. And ultimately makes a death threat. Do you ever think that God was bringing Pharaoh to the end of himself? So that as he's holding his firstborn in his arms dead, he realizes this whole journey that he's been on. We'll wrestle with that next week. Next question, fourth question. The Egyptians lived in darkness for three days while the Israelites lived in light. Just imagine that. Imagine like the, the difference. Somehow the Israelites were in Goshen able to live in light, which was in proximity to Egypt, and yet they not, the Egyptians not being able to see it. Crazy. Final question here. What does this plague reveal about God? Uh, yes, that's right. God's will by God's power for God's glory. And more specifically, God's power holds the universe in his hands. You can take that down, uh, Andrew Force. Um, did your parents uh, ever have the, uh, they ever have the, the clap on light? They ever have that? It's kind of funny, right? Like they would say, clap on, and then they would say, clap off, and it would, you know. It's kind of. Kind of, kind of cute there, isn't it? Um, this was uh, this was our flashlight in the jungle. It sh- it shoots literally 500 yards. I mean, look at this. This thing is like unbelievably bright. And um, on the uh, on the last day in Ecuador. Um, all of us got to experience uh, something monumental. We have, uh, we've taken seven trips down, taken 126 people down to Ecuador, and it's been a beautiful partnership, one that I cherish. And we're partnered with a, uh, a village called Santana, and in that village, we started work last year on a church building to support a church planter named Dario. There's about 400 people in Santana and um, not much Christian influence, but it seemed like last year that that influence was growing. So our team shows up this year, and working alongside of us was uh, Pastor Dario and also um, a crotchety old man who has been very, very against the gospel. Uh, in fact, a Steve, the missionary that we're partnered with in Quito, uh, has communicated that uh, his last time in Santana, that he literally had to tell this guy to, to shut up because he was being so belligerent against Steve. So these are the two guys that we're working with, church planter and angry old man. Well, we finish um, much of the church building. I mean, we like pour the entire foundation of concrete. We're working extremely hard. It's in the jungle, so it's super, super hot. We're... Um, we get down to the end of it, and all of us uh, guys were sweating, just insanely tired. 
And I remembered at that, at that moment that Steve had told me that Dario was incredibly discouraged. And I started to realize why. This community that had seemed so receptive to the gospel in Santana, like we barely saw anyone help us. Last year, there would be tens and uh, tens upon tens of people that would come out and help us do concrete or move rock. And this time, not so much. And, and Dario had gotten discouraged. He was the called church planter, pastor, that was supposed to plant this church there. And Steve had said he was considering to call it quits. So we're all walking away from the job site, and, and uh, Dario calls us over. And we're all watching him, and we're, we're looking in his eyes. And he says, can we pray? And I watch a man in front of me, a called man of God, to plant a church in an area that's incredibly difficult. I watch this man experience light. Every single one of us start looking up because what's starting to happen is Dario is praying, but he can't pray because he's weeping. Because he has, in the past couple months, grown so discouraged by so many people who are anti-gospel, living in the darkness, that he himself has found his heart lured to follow, to follow suit as well. But in his prayer, as he breaks down, he's saying things like, God, thank you for calling me here. God, give me courage. God, give me strength. He has broken down. In this moment, all of us, and I related so much to the early days of Matthias, I'm watching a man regain his calling as a pastor. I mean, this is the power of the light of the gospel. It can take a dude who's in the darkest spot in his ministry, and it can say, no, there is hope. It doesn't matter how alone you feel or how dark you feel. And then, and then, and then, the old man standing over here by himself, I see grab his knees. And I'm wondering, like, what's he going to do? Like, is he like getting angry here? And I see the tears start to fall from his face. And what we watch right in front of our eyes is the power of the light of the gospel. It's the power of two men in two very different places having two things in common. Being in dark places, but both together Experiencing the power of the light. Darkness is a very powerful thing, isn't it? Some of you know that very full well tonight. You're in that place. You're in that reality. You know what it feels like. You know what you're experiencing you don't know what's up or what's down. You feel like you're in the prison hole. You're confused. You're ready to call it quits. You're ready to run away from the gospel. You're ready to run away from your family. You're so bogged down and burdened by dark. Here's what I've learned is the light always wins. Always. A completely dark room and yet one light, just one. One. 
draws all attention to it. God says, listen, Ra, you don't hold the universe in your hands. I do. And tonight, I look every single one of you, those who walk in here with a forever hardened dark heart, anti-gospel, anti-hope, you've been living isolated, you've been living secretly in shame and smiling on the outside so the public will think it's okay. I'm telling you tonight, the light of the gospel can completely invade that dark heart of yours. And the pieces of you that feel so distant inside, you know it because you feel it. I'm saying, Scripture says in 1 John that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's none. Watch, receive, call on His name. Ask Him to shed light in the dark areas of your life. And for those of you in here who are believers, who've confessed, who've opened your heart to the gospel before, but find yourself back in the hole, I'm telling you and reminding you again of the hope of the light that is in Him tonight, now. I watched two men right before me. No reason to. Just all of a sudden believing that God is who he said that he is. That it didn't matter their circumstance. It didn't matter their situation. It didn't matter who. Listen, it didn't matter who was against them. I watched two men believe that God was for them. And that that was enough. Church, tonight, tonight, can we celebrate the light that is God? Come on. Three days of darkness in a tomb. And one bright morning where our God says, death is conquered once for all. Amen? So, Father, for my friends here tonight, for my brothers, for my sisters, for those incredibly distant or those very near, would you help us long for the light? Would you help us believe that it's there? Would you help us receive the arm that's reached down, pulling us out of the pit once again? Shine your light on us, O God, and help us receive it in spirit and in truth. Let's stand together, church.